Our Father, we thank you for the riches of your grace. We have sung of something of your salvation this morning. We have heard it read. And now we will hear it in a particular text and in a particular life. And we're just, frankly, overwhelmed that such a God would save such a sinner. And we speak when we say that, not of such a sinner like Paul, but of such a sinner like me, like us. In your magnanimous, infinite love, you chose us to be yours, saved us, made us your friend, adopted us into your family. It is, it is overwhelming that you would do this. And might we be stimulated as Paul was in this passage this morning to great gratitude and great service because of this great work of salvation that you have worked in us. Would you change us by what we hear this morning and would you encourage our hearts by what we hear this morning We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Three years ago, Chris Young was named general manager of the Texas Rangers. Some of you who have been, who've known me really well, have been waiting for me to talk about the World Series. (laughs) Here we go. Three years ago, Chris Young was made general manager of the Texas Rangers. And at that time, he talked to longtime Texas Ranger announcer Eric Nadell and said something like this. We need you to stay our announcer until we win the World Series. And it's not going to be long. Eric Nadell said a little over two weeks ago, I didn't believe him. And three years later, after 50 years of skepticism, they indeed finally won the World Series. (laughs) Young's plan was a frequently tried approach. Draft good young players with really high upside potential and spend lots of money on seasoned players. I mean lots of money, like half a billion dollars to two players. That's a lot of money. And that wasn't the end of his spending. The philosophy was really pretty simple. Invest as much money in the best possible people that you can find anywhere to do the job. It's a, it's a philosophy that's not uncommon, certainly in the sports world, nor even in the world in general. But have you noticed that God does not work that way? He doesn't use the best and brightest. He gravitates to the ordinary. Says one writer, God must delight in using ordinary people with ordinary gifts because he made so many of us. But have you noticed this as well? That God not only uses ordinary people, he uses weak people, broken people, even sinners to accomplish his task. Said another writer, make no mistake. Whatever our aspirations and achievements for God, we will never 
be far from weakness and sinfulness. And that's the kind of people that God uses. We were thinking over the last few weeks of this year about our annual theme, Equipping the Saints. Last week we talked about the goal of equipping. What is it that we want to do as we're building into people, shepherding them, discipling them, training them? Uh, What's our intention as we equip? Today we want to answer the question, who is going to do this task of equipping? Who will be engaged in the process of building into others and shaping others and discipling others? Who will build up others? Who will do the work of the ministry? And what we're going to find in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, is that God's greatness is revealed when He uses saved sinners to serve Him. God uses saved sinners to serve Him. In fact, He only uses saved sinners to serve Him. And it's not so that we get glory. It is so that He gets glory. So that His greatness is put on display. So that His wonder is demonstrated to the nations. By the end of this passage, we're going to find that while Paul spends most of these verses about God's work in his life and what he had been transformed from and what he had been transformed to, the emphasis is not on the Apostle Paul, but the emphasis is on the greatness of God's character. And because of that emphasis on God, we will find that Paul gives us four responses for sinners who serve him, four responses for sinners who serve him. Let's consider the first of these realities, first of these responses that we ought to engage in because we are saved by him. Number one, thank God who uses sinners to serve him. Thank God who uses sinners to serve him. We find that in verses 12 through 14. And the first thing I want you to note is that we are to thank God because he strengthens sinners for service. He strengthens sinners for service. As we come to this text, verses 12 and following, it's something like a a personal testimony from the Apostle Paul. And it has something of the force of, if, if God can do this for me, then he will not be limited in what he can do for you either. No one on the basis of Paul's testimony can say that his sin is beyond God's power to save and redeem. No one can say God's power is inadequate. God's power, God's strength is inadequate to save him. Notice what the Apostle Paul says right at the beginning. He says, the one who is acting for him, verse 12, is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who is it that's working on the, be- on the behalf of the Apostle Paul? It's Christ Jesus, the eternal God-man, the one who is Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who is fully God. And yet, at the same time, he's not just fully God, he is also Jesus, fully man. It is this, this unique, hypostatic union of God and man in one flesh that is acting. And it is the one who is, notice he says, our Savior. He is not only Christ Jesus, but he is the sovereign Lord of all things. He is the sovereign Lord of the Apostle Paul, and he is the sovereign Lord of the Ephesians. Notice he uses the pronoun our. 
He's our Lord. That is, He is my Lord, and at the same time, He is also your Lord. He is, he, we have the same one who serves as our Lord and Savior. And it is a reminder as He uses that pronoun our to include the Ephesians in with Himself in what God has done in salvation to note that God has not worked anything unusual in the Apostle Paul that is not also available to the Ephesians. What he has done for him, he has done, can do, and will do for them as well. They share a common salvation that comes from a common emptiness. Neither of them, neither Paul nor the Ephesians, had any ability to save themselves. They were spiritually empty. And they have a common Provision of a great Savior. And notice that the Apostle in verse 12 points to three particular aspects that Christ Jesus is working in his life. He notes, first of all, that he has strengthened me. Paul's thinking about a particular time in which he was transformed from weakness to strength. And he's thinking particularly of the fact that it is Christ who is enabling him. It's Christ enable, Christ's enablement that has ministered to him to make him strong. What's he thinking about particularly? It seems, and we'll see this as we make our way through this list, it seems that he's thinking particularly of God's enablement and strength to forgive him. It's God's forgiving power that takes him from a sinner and turns him into a saint. And I don't mean by that a particularly per- a particularly special person, but just one who is viewed by God as a holy one. And God has strengthened him in that. Not only has God, Christ Jesus strengthened him, but notice he also says, he has considered me faithful. That word considered, you find translated in a number of different ways, or there are words, excuse me, a number of words that are translated, considered in the New Testament. One that is Commonly translated has that idea of imputation, right? A consideration or a reckoning of Christ's imputed righteousness for us. This is not that word, but it does have a similar idea. Here it it has the idea that the Christ is thinking about the Apostle Paul and he is regarding the Apostle Paul in a particular way. And what he thinks about Paul is... He is faithful. He is faithful, even though, as a sinner, he wasn't faithful. He doesn't consider him faithful because of what the Apostle Paul is intrinsically in himself. And in fact, verse 13 is going to make that clear, right? I was a blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. That's not faithfulness to Christ. In fact, it's the exact opposite. But it's pointing to the fact that there are other factors involved in the consideration, the reckoning that Paul is faithful. It's not what Paul is internally and intrinsically, but Paul is considered faithful because of external forces that have been worked on him. And what is the external force that's been worked on him? It's the cross of Christ. The cross is what makes him to be considered faithful. And notice that, that Paul says he considered me faithful. That pronoun is emphatic in that string of words. And it's as if Paul is saying, I can't believe that he would think of me in this way. Me, the Apostle Paul. 
And even carries that further, a third aspect of how Christ has worked in him. He notes at the end of verse 12, he has been, he has put me into service. Put me. Again, it's emphatic. He's regarded me and not only regarded me, but he has put me into service. He has appointed me to service. The, idea, the word has the idea of he has commissioned me to a particular task of service for him. And when he says that, he doesn't mean by that, he put me into service, but I'm inadequate and unable, and the service fell flat. No, no, no. He means us to understand that he's put me into service, he's made me adequate for that task, so that I could fulfill his calling on me and serve him with faithfulness, with joy, with effectiveness. In fact, it's the very same idea that he gives us in his last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says in verse 20, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. And therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. As Paul thinks about the usefulness to the master, I think he's just overwhelmed that God would give him a ministry and then make him useful. Him, Paul. It's overwhelming to him. In God's grace, God not only saved the sinner Paul, but he also entrusted the care of the gospel of Jesus Christ to his church, and to Apostle Paul, the one who had formerly desired to destroy the gospel and the church, is now entrusted with that gospel. And you take all these phrases together, and it just seems that Paul is clearly thinking about his Damascus Road experience, how when he was going to persecute the church, Christ literally stopped him in his tracks blinded him and made him to see in his physical blindness the spiritual reality of the gospel and he changed him from the inside out. Paul talks about that in numerous places in his letters. Let me just note what he says in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 verse 13 he says, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. This is what I was And this now in God's grace is what I am. Paul is absolutely astounded that God would work that in him. But that is exactly what God not only did for the Apostle Paul, but what he does for all sinners everywhere. He continues to only use sinners who he has redeemed, who he has strengthened, who he has restored to put into service for him. What does it take to be qualified for service for Christ? You've got to be a sinner. I think you all check that box. 
And you've got to be redeemed. And that's enough. And brothers and sisters, that ought to be so hopeful for you. That your life, once you have been redeemed, is no longer wasted. But it can be useful for the master. There's another reason that he thanks God. And it's given to us in verses 13 and 14. God mercies sinners from sin. And I know that isn't very good grammar. But it's what Paul says. So I'm just mimicking him. So let's look at what he says. Verse 13. When Paul says in verse 12 that Christ considered me faithful, he is astounded. The, the astound, astonishment comes from the fact that Paul is aware of and remembers his sin prior to his salvation. He remembers what he used to be. You remember what you used to be before Christ? Some of those memories are not very good memories, are they? They're grievous memories. They're sad. And they may even make you to think, prompt you to think, God can't use me. But Paul takes the reality of what he was. And he puts it in a biblical framework. He is not proud of what he was, but neither is he ashamed of it. And neither does he let it distract him from serving Christ. Notice what he says about what he was. Verse 13. I was formerly a blasphemer. Just note that word formerly. It is what he was. It is not what he is. It is what God used to think of him. It is not what God presently thinks of him. And brothers and sisters, if you're coming with a complicated past, by which I mean a sinful past. That is the framework when you're in Christ in which you need to place this. Your past is what you were. Your past is not what you are. Your past is not determinative for your present or your future when you have been redeemed by Christ. And that is where the Apostle Paul will take us. Notice what he says. I was formerly a blasphemer. What's a blasphemer? A blasphemer is one who mocks the name of God. And specifically in the New Testament, mocks the name of God through a rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, under the Old Testament, Paul was trying to fulfill the law. And he was trying to fulfill the law by killing Christians. He thought that Christianity and Christ and the Messiah were taking people away from the genuine God. So, in a sense, he's trying to preserve the name of God. But in so doing, he actually becomes a blasphemer of, of God. And do you remember what the consequence was under the Old Testament law for a blasphemer? Stoning. He was worthy of death by his blasphemy. It's not an inconsequential thing. It is not a small thing. He says, I was a blasphemer. Notice not only as a blasphemer, but also I was a persecutor. That is, he approved of persecution. Remember when Stephen was stoned? Stephen stoned in chapter chapter 7, put to death for his faith in Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Paul standing on the sidelines while the rocks and stones are being thrown and he's cheering for the martyrdom of Stephen. And on that day, Acts 8, 1, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria 
except the apostles. The apostles stood fast. Verse 3, but Paul, excuse me, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. He approved of persecution. He arrested people and he persecuted people himself. He was a persecutor. It didn't stop there. Notice what he says, verse 13, and a violent aggressor. That is exactly what it sounds like. He carried out violence against those who had faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 1, now Saul, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from him from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any found along the way belonging to the way both men and women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem now what does that mean he wants permission to gather believers to take them to prison and he he says In so many words, I want to kill you. He was in every way opposed to God, hated Christ, and hated the gospel. And Paul says of that, that is exactly what I was. And friend, if again, if you are in that kind of a position when you, if you come with that kind of a past or another kind of a sordid past, again, remember that is what you were and not is what not is not what you are. First Corinthians chapter six, speaking about those who will come into the kingdom, Paul says in verse nine, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That was the Corinthian testimony. All that stuff was in their heritage and in their list. And then he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I know there are some of you, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but I know that there are some of you who come with really hard pasts. And if you are in Christ, know that you were washed, know that you were sanctified, know that you are justified. Again, your past is not your present And instead of meditating on the past, you meditate on what you are. Instead of meditating on what you were and grieving over that, you rest in what you are in Christ and you make him your meditation, your delight and your satisfaction. Why could Paul be so confident of his position? Notice what he says, even though I was formerly A blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor, yet. Don't you love the word yet in the Bible? I was headed that way, yet. This was my reality, but God. And that's one of these. Yet, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That word yet is the strongest contrastive that is possible with the ordinary 
uh, words that Paul would use. It's, 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 it's not this 180 degree difference. It is this. In spite of what he was, he says, I was shown mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is the withholding of what is due someone. And what Paul was due, we've already seen it. What Paul was due was death. What Paul was due was um, condemnation, wrath, eternal judgment. And in mercy, God withheld that from him. Though he deserved it, God holds it back. And Paul says, verse um, 13, I was shown mercy. In fact, it's not just I was shown mercy. To get a sense of the significance of it, he says, I was mercied. I was mercied by God. Instead of judged by God, I was mercied by Him. Instead of damnation, there is just or there is um, reconciliation and restoration. And not, not only that, along with that mercy, notice what he says in verse 14. I also received grace, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. Not only does God withhold his wrath from me, but he also graces me with something. And grace is the giving of a gift. So I don't receive what I do deserve, and I do receive that which I don't deserve. That's grace. And what he has received is a free gift from God. He's thinking about his ministry, his salvation, everything that comes because of his position in Christ. And notice what he says about it in verse 14. It was more than abundant. It was superbounding. It was overflowing. It was limitless. There is no limit to the grace that God will give to a redeemed sinner. And Paul here is thinking particularly about special aspects of our position in Christ. And he says the grace of our Lord was more than abundant notice. He says with, that's the content of the grace, with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. In particular, I received grace that led me to faith, to have faith, so that I would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and love. What kind of love? Well, love of God for sure. But as we saw last week, I think contextually what he's thinking about primarily is love for the saints. The ones who he hated. The ones who he persecuted. The ones he sought to put to death. The ones who he said to, I want to kill you. The ones he put into prison and some of whom undoubtedly were killed. Some of whom may greet, may have greeted him in heaven when he arrived and say something like, Oh, Paul, you're the one who put me in prison that led to my martyrdom. How's that for a greeting when you get to heaven? That's the one who had received grace to love those he hated. Brothers and sisters, there's a reminder for us about the magnitude of what God can do in our lives to change us. God was exceedingly gracious to produce faith in Paul that would lead to trust in Christ and provide his salvation for him. But he was also gracious to give Paul a love for those whom he hated. Brothers and sisters, let us hear this. In grace, God will give us everything we need to live this life. You are not shortchanged ever 
in the gospel. You have everything you need. Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 3, 4, is our life. Like the Apostle Paul, whatever your sin, there is sufficient mercy from Christ to withhold judgment. And there is sufficient grace to empower you with eternal life and even ministry and service now. Friend, you are not beyond salvation and you are not beyond useful service. You can be saved and you not only can be saved, you can be saved in such a way that you can be made useful to the master. To say that Christ can save and say that Christ does save does not Minimize your sin. Don't read verse 13 and think, well, Paul thinks it's not such a big deal. No. It is a massively big deal. He is not minimizing sin. Our sin, his sin, is intensely, infinitely wicked. When he says what he says about mercy and grace, he's not minimizing sin. He is maximizing Christ. However great your sin, Christ is greater However great your abomination and your rejection of Christ, Christ's mercy is greater than that to withhold His judgment. Christ's grace is greater than that to equip you for ministry and service. And my friend, if you are here this morning and you do not yet believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you may be here this morning and you may have been here every morning for the last 22 years. But you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't walk out of here thinking my sin is too big. God can't do anything about it. My friend, his mercy is greater. And you must believe and you can believe. And he will save. And he will redeem. And he will restore. And he will make you useful. What do you need to believe? Turn the page. Chapter 2. There is one God and there is one mediator also between God and men. Chapter 2, verse 5, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. What do you need to believe? You need to believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man. You must believe that Jesus Christ as the eternal God-man died on the cross, not for his sin, but for yours. And that when he died on that cross, he absorbed God's wrath against your sin. And that if you believe that, that he will save you from your sin and he will equip you to live for him. That's what you must believe. And friend, if you don't believe that yet, would you start believing today? Would you start trusting that Christ is enough to pay for your sin? And would you start trusting that Christ is enough to live for day by day? From this point forward. What is Paul's response to all of this? Notice this. Beginning of verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus. As Paul thinks about his former life. He is overwhelmed with gratitude towards Christ. His response to God. Is gratitude for His saving him and his redeeming him. We might even say that he has planned with intentionality to be grateful. And he's not just grateful once, but he says, I thank. That's a present tense, which means I am continually, ongoingly, 
always giving thanks to God for what He has done to save me. This week, we're headed into Thanksgiving week. And I don't know about you, but you may be thinking uh, this week as we're approaching the end of this year, you know, 2023 is ending and it can't end soon enough. Some of you have been saying that. Some of you said that in 2020. Some of you repeated it in 21 and 22. And here we go again. Maybe 24 will be better. Oh, friend. If you're in Christ, no matter what your hardship, no matter what your difficulty, and I do not diminish the weight of some of the things that y'all are bearing. If you are in Christ, you always have reason for gratitude. No matter your past and no matter your present, if you're in Christ, you can be thankful. And might I just encourage you this week to be intentional, to take some time to start making a list for what should I be thankful and how can I be thankful to Christ who has saved me? As Paul thinks about the work of God to save him, he is first of all thankful. Secondly, a second response that he gives for us in this, these verses is this. Trust the God who uses sinners to serve him. Verse 15 It is a trustworthy statement. That means that what he is about to say, it is is dependable and faithful. We can trust it. We can believe it. We should believe it. We must believe it. And the truth that he points to that we should particularly believe, that we should particularly accept in full is, middle of the verse, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is why Christ came. To redeem sinners. And He didn't just come to redeem sinners. He came to redeem the worst. He didn't come to die on the cross for people who are kind of okay, but not very bad sinners. There is no such thing as a kind of okay, but not very bad sinner. They're all desperately wicked. All of us are. And that is the kind of sinner for which Christ died. And Paul doesn't exclude himself from that list. Notice what he says at the end of verse 15. Among whom I am foremost at all. In other words, I'm at the head of the line of sinners. As I consider all the sinners in the world, I'm at the front of the line, the worst of the worst. There is no one who is in a worse condition than me. And this isn't the only place he says that. But in Acts 26, he says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15. He says the same thing in Galatians 1, which we read a little bit earlier, in Ephesians 3 and Philippians 3. He's just permeated with this idea. I'm the worst of the worst, and God still saved me. Because that's what he does. John MacArthur writes about this verse. The Bible records the conversions of the maniac at Gadara, the despised tax collector and traitor to his people, Matthew, blind Bartimaeus and his friend, the adulterous Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, the Roman centurion at the crucifixion, Cornelius, the Ethiopian eunuch, the Philippian jailer, jailer, and Lydia, among others. But of all the conversions ever recorded, none was more remarkable than that of Saul of Tarsus. This bitter enemy of the cause of Christ, in his own words, was the foremost of sinners, yet became the greatest evangelist and theologian the world has ever seen. 
Paul never lost the wonder that God could and did redeem someone like him. And he viewed himself as the supreme example of God's saving grace. Oh, friend, hear this today. It's trustworthy. Eternity hangs on this and is stable. That Christ came to save sinners. And he has saved the worst. He can save you and keep you into eternity. Trust it. Thirdly, verse 16. Be encouraged when God uses sinners to serve Him. Be encouraged when God uses sinners to serve Him. God's salvation of sinners is not random. It's not happenstance. There is a purpose behind God saving sinners. We, we know some of those purposes from other passages of Scripture. We know that when God saves a sinner, God is glorified. We'll, we'll see that a little bit later. We understand that when God saves sinners, they're freed from the chains of sin. They're made able to please the Lord. We understand that they're given the gift of heaven and freed from the terror of hell and given fellowship and unity with the triune God. Those are all reasons why God saves sinners, but that's not what Paul points to here. Notice what he points to in verse 16. Why did I find mercy? For this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, the foremost what? The foremost sinner, the greatest sinner, the head of the line sinner. Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. This is the reason that Paul found mercy, so that he would be an example to those who saw him. That if God can save him and use him, he can save and use Anyone. He's an example. He's a type. Paul is the kind of sinner God saves. If he's willing to save the worst, he will also save the lesser. And when we see testimonies of God's grace, which by God's grace, I hope you will see in our baptism in a few moments, we should not only rejoice, absolutely, we should rejoice that they have been saved, but we should also be encouraged. That God has saved them. He can save me. He has kept them. He can keep me. And he can not only save us. But he will like the Apostle Paul. Also use us. To serve him. Christ can not only use sinners. Like Paul. To serve others in the body of Christ. He only uses sinners like Paul. To minister in the body of Christ. That's all he has. There's only been one perfect man. And he's at the right hand of the throne of God. And all that is left is redeemed sinners. And that is what God uses. To build up. To equip. To train. To establish his church. So who am I to be used by God to help in his church and the building up of his body? I'm a redeemed sinner 
just the kind of person that God loves to use. And why is it that he does that? Notice verse 4. Remember why God serves, uses sinners to serve him. Number 4, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you think about the fact that God takes sinners, redeems them, and then uses those sinners to accomplish his purposes in building the church, cards on the table, it just doesn't seem like a very wise plan, does it? I mean, there, there, are, there, are, there seem to be better ways to do that, don't there? I mean, God can, God can take the message of salvation and literally float it down from heaven in placards with the writing of whatever language it needs to be read in and disseminated around the world. Wouldn't that be better than using broken, weak people? Nope. Why does God use the weak, the frail, the troubled, the sinner? It's really simple. So that we never get the glory and He always gets the glory. And that's why Paul breaks out And this benediction of praise in verse 17. Because it is obvious. This isn't about Paul. This isn't a lifting up of the Apostle Paul. Look at me. Look at what I've done. No. He's not done anything. It's all God. It's all Christ. It's all the gospel. It's all his salvation. It's all God who is the king eternal. The one who is the eternal sovereign ruling in every place. It is God the immortal. The one who is immune from decay and incorruptible. Who will never diminish and never die. It is God the one who is invisible. The one who is a spirit and transcendent. And though we do not see him he eternally exists. It is the one who is the only God. The one who has no one to compare with him. The one who is entirely unique. The one who is apart from all others and no one else is like him. It is him alone who gets glory and honor. And only him. It's always about him. You know, you read this passage and you think, well, it's about Paul. Well, it kind of is. But it is supremely about God and the revelation of him and his nature. Notice all of the actions of God in this passage. It is Christ Jesus, the God-man, who is the Lord and sovereign, who strengthened Paul. It is Christ Jesus who considered and rendered and imputed Paul with faithfulness. It is Christ Jesus who put Paul into service, giving him gifts and a ministry. It is God who mercied Paul when Paul deserved wrath and judgment. It is God who poured out grace on Paul. It is God who gave Paul grace that was abundant and sufficient. It is God who gave Paul the faith and the love that are only found in Christ Jesus. It is God who saved sinners through Christ. It is God who saved the worst of sinners, Paul, proving there is no limit to his grace. It is God's mercy that was put on public display through the salvation of Paul. It is God's mercy who it, that is for all who, like Paul, will believe in Christ, and it is eternal in power and duration. It's all God, and it's all his glory. Is it any wonder that Paul explodes into the benediction he does in verse 17? It's all about God. Using weak people to accomplish his purposes. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned in passing that Regina and I are kind of nerdy and um, we like to go to museums. And recently, we've been to several presidential museums. 
And we love going to those places and we love reading all those plaques. I'm one of those guys that reads every word on every plaque. So it, I, get, I, get, I get my money's worth when I go through a museum because I read everything. We look at every display. I won't say we watch every single video, but we watch a lot of them. And we enjoy that. And we love seeing the artifacts. And it's really cool to go into these places and see some of the artifacts. If you go to Ronald Reagan's Presidential Museum, museum inside the building is Air Force One. It's really impressive. And you walk through, you can walk through Ronald Reagan's Air Force One and see where he sat. And see the places where the power leaders of the world sat with him as they guided the world system. Really cool. You can see the suit that Eisenhower at his museum wore on his wedding day. You can see the childhood car of Mamie Eisenhower. And, and, uh, and you can see a lot more. It's really interesting though, in all honesty, as you look at these items whether it's a pen that signs a particular piece of legislation or a car or a plane or a suit. Really, it's just a, pain. It's just a pen. It's just a plane. It's just a car. It's just a suit. What gives them value is the one who owned them. Now consider God's museum. God's museum is filled with weak, broken sinners. There is not one majestic person on display. We are the broken pens, scrap heap cars, inoperable airplanes, and torn suits of God's museum until the Lord redeems us and puts us into his service. God specializes in using the weak and the broken. They're the only kind of people that God uses. But when God possesses us, We receive all the dignity and all the value and all the power of being God's children. And we serve him and he gets honor. Who will equip the saints? Weak, broken people just like you and me. Our Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the testimony of faith that we have seen in baptism. And we trust and ask that we will be able to see in just a moment verbally as well. And thank you, Father, for the reminder of the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Of what you were pleased to work in him and through him. It's a reminder that every salvation is never of us. It's always of you. And every work of ministry and every work of service is not of us. It's always of you. But you can always use us, all of us, when you have redeemed us. Might we be faithful to that task, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.